Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day. I've had a great week. We've had some wonderful feedback about our episode with Manoj Dios, and we also just recorded an interview with Thajal and Jaisal from the Yoga Is Dead podcast. That was amazing. We think these are really important conversations to have, and it's important to hear diverse voices, especially South Asian voices when we're talking about yoga, which brings us to today's episode. This episode features a recorded conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart, and Shamala Benakovic, or Sham. Shamala is the CEO of Yoga Australia, and this is another of our episodes released in collaboration with Yoga Australia. If you heard our episode with Michael DeManincourt, he mentioned that the hiring of Shamala as General Manager of Yoga Australia was his greatest accomplishment, and I think that really speaks to her talent, passion, and incredible work ethic. It's a great conversation, but before we get on with that, I just wanted to let you know about the Adrenal Healing Workshop we have coming up at our studio, Garden of Yoga, hosted by Gina McCauley. We learned about this workshop when we spoke with Gina on the podcast way back in January, and we asked her to teach this workshop at our studio back in May. Joe and I love this sequence so much that we do it nearly every day now. It incorporates a gentle movement practice, pranayama, and meditation, and only takes around 40 minutes. The last workshop sold out, so get in quick. I'll leave a link in the show notes at podcast.flowartist.com. All right, that's more than enough from me. Let's get on to the conversation with Shamala. All right, well, Sham, so good to speak with you today. So great to get the opportunity to have a chat. So perhaps we could just start by getting a little bit about your background and perhaps where you grew up. Thank you for having me, Rain and Joe. So my background is I was born and brought up in Malaysia, Mm -hmm. but I was uh, born to a Hindu household, so uh, my background is Hinduism. And at the age of 18, I moved to the United Kingdom where I was for 10 years. And then I met my husband and we moved to Australia in 1996. So my background, education background is education and and mathematics. So a teacher to begin with, a school teacher to begin with. But then I went into management consulting quite quickly after that. So I've worked in the management consulting role in the UK, in Malaysia and in Australia before I gave that up to do yoga permanently. And so growing up in a Hindu household, did you grow up with yoga? Yes. So yoga, although is not part, is not a religion, but it's intrinsically part of Hinduism. They come from the same origins, if you like. So there's a lot of aspects in Hinduism that are yogic in nature. So the prayer, the meditation, the relaxation and the practice of asana can be linked quite closely to Hinduism and also the cultural sense of Hinduism in terms of the dances that we do, the verdict chants that we do can link back to yoga. So when you teach yoga, the yogic text, the official yogic text is Patanjali, Yoga Mm -hmm. Sutras, and that's not to do with Hinduism and that's how you teach. But if you're a Hindu and you've got yoga sometimes it gets mixed up and Mm -hmm. in your delivery is a little bit different than someone who actually just teaches yoga after learning 
without that religious background. So I think that's why it's often confused. Mm -hmm. People confuse yoga with religion, but there is a separation and there's a reason for that confusion as well. So as a teacher, you need to be aware of that, particularly if you come from a religious background that is linked to, to that particular practice. That's my feeling. I think that's where people get confused, but it's easily explained because one comes from the Verdic scriptures, the other is the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. And so growing up in Malaysia, was there much of a Hindu community? Did you have a temple that you went to with your family? Um, yes. Or? So we went to temples every Friday. Friday was the auspicious day in the Indian tradition, so we maintained that. But more than that, growing up Hindu, you do have an altar at home. So there's a whole morning ritual that goes with that. So the morning prayers involve cleaning up the altar space, getting the flowers, making sure the water is fresh. My mother or my grandmother would cook a little something to offer as we did our prayers in the morning. And then we all went off to work or school. So in that sense, that is where the yogic tradition comes from. That's, that's the link. And on Fridays, we'd go to the temple or there's a special celebration would go to the temple. So the temple is, is quite central to things that we do. So we get married in the temple. Funerals are linked to that as well, but that doesn't occur in the temple, but you get the priest to come home to do their prayers for you. And so in your own teaching and your own practice, mm -hmm. I suppose you can choose how much of the religious aspect you want to bring in and how much you just want to keep it secular. And yeah. so that it is a practice that everyone can enjoy and there wouldn't be any kind of clash if someone was coming with their own religion that was different. Yeah. Is it something that just is really natural for you? Like you will just teach as it flows from you or is it something that you kind of think about and make conscious choices with? No, I teach as it comes. So I teach depending on my audience. So I give a different class if I'm in a corporate setting, for example, a different class if I'm in a community setting, for example, or a different class to a group of teachers, for example, who are familiar with Yoga Sutras as well as, you know, Sanskrit, as well as the Vedic chants, etc. And it comes naturally because you get a feel for the crowd that's in and, and what they're wanting. I learned how to teach yoga in Australia, so it's easy for me to actually do a class that's for everybody. But as I developed as a teacher, I then started to link my teachings in Hinduism to yoga. But it, it only is relevant to certain people who understand and, and can, can accept that. And I guess especially if you're teaching a group of yoga teachers, it's actually an amazing opportunity for them yeah. to learn from someone mm. who is drawing from their own culture and their own lineage, especially with something like chanting when pronunciation is That's right. often a little bit distorted yeah. if it kind of goes through too many different yeah. teachers. It's great to like reconnect with someone who's a bit more connected to yeah. the source. Yeah, pronunciation is, you know, even I'm not really that great. So I'm actually doing a course in Sanskrit with the Australian National University and that's helping me to get the pronunciation because the pronunciation, even being brought up as a Hindu, it really depends where you've come from, whether you're south, north, and the language. I come from a Tamil-speaking background, whereas Sanskrit's more related to Hindi-speaking background. So the pronunciation is a challenge for everybody, really. You say it differently, depending on where, where you're born, where your history is. It's actually really interesting. Like, I'm not a very confident singer and always felt a little bit awkward doing chanting in a class, especially when it's not that clear what you're meant to be saying. Mm -hmm. And going to a chanting class in Rishikesh, where yep. the teacher there made it so much about breaking down that's each right. syllable yep. of the word. Yep. Like, that's where I could actually find the meditation aspect of it, mm -hmm. where it's not so much about the musicality of the singing. Yeah. 
singing, it's that concentration and focus of trying to get this pronunciation as close as you can. Yeah. And that's how you learn Burdick chants. So you don't worry so much about the chants and what they mean. You actually do a lot of roll calling. So, you know, someone says it and then you repeat it and you repeat it enough times. So so you learn it without looking at anything, Mm. looking at any of the scripts. So it's really interesting now that I'm doing the Sanskrit studies to actually connect the actual Sanskrit alphabets to actually the chants that I've been saying since age three. It's amazing. And the pronunciation, you think about it. It'd be quite hard to retrain yourself as well if you've been saying a word one way since you were three. That's true. And, now That's true. and, and you know, as I said, I'm Tamil speaking and the Sanskrit's very, very different in, even in terms of its alphabets and pronunciations. But it's a systematic language. It works from the shape of your mouth and where you put your tongue. So the different alphabets coincide with that. So it's interesting. Perhaps we could rewind a little bit. What led you to actually wanting to teach yoga? So it was completely unplanned, my journey to the teaching world. So as you know, I've been a management consultant. So I was doing that since pretty much since I graduated, which was 1993. And I was doing that when I came here until 2008, really. So it was it was a big journey. I loved my work for most of the time. But when we had Ruben, our one and only child, it was getting difficult. As a management consultant, I traveled a lot. And because I didn't have a network, if you like, in Australia or anywhere in this world, because I've moved around so much. I took on a lot of work that involved travel to build that network and to get revenue in for whatever organisations. It became quite challenging when my husband started to travel as well. So I decided to to give up. But I'd been practising yoga, you know, Iyengar yoga or Bikram yoga. In fact, in, at that time, I was a, I was a keen Bikram yoga student practising at the Fitzroy Bikram yoga studio. And I wanted to learn more about yoga outside of what I've learned at home and with my family. I wanted to know more about the yogic philosophy because you don't do that as part of, you know, you don't learn the Patanjali Yoga Sutra. So I thought, you know, I could get an understanding and I was quite into Bikram and the teachers were really good and they said I could do the teacher training, but Ruben was very young and I wasn't willing to do the nine week in LA. I thought, you know, I'm sure I can find something local. But as I was thinking about that, the CAE leaflet got dropped into my mailbox and I saw the teacher training and things happened very quickly after that. I applied for the course went into the interview session. I don't know if you guys have done the same training. I did, but yeah. Uh, it was a group interview with Lee, who's the founder of Yoga Australia, and I got in and I thought, oh, wow. And it was amazing. It just, it just fell. And again, I just didn't think whether I wanted to teach or not. This was a comprehensive course that went through the curriculum was was great and I wanted to and then when we meet the teachers they were a great faculty and so I I thought I'll do it and it wasn't until about 18 months into the course that I thought okay I think I can I can stand up and and teach but it was a big learning curve I learned a lot and I think I, I still learned a lot you know despite having grown up and having had some sort of yoga throughout my life what I did at the CAE that two-year course really opened my eyes to yoga and what yoga is really I Amazing teachers. Mm. A few who we've had on this podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guess as well, there's also that other aspect where you're not just learning about yoga, you're learning to teach other people, which yeah. is a whole different set yeah. of yeah. skills and mm. strategies. What do you love most about teaching yoga today? I think it's actually watching people change in their mindset and in their practice, watching them relax and embrace yoga as as a way, as a lifestyle. I think that's, you know, that was the difference between growing up 
my household and then living a yogic lifestyle. I think I only did that once I did the course and started teaching because you really needed to change in yourself to be able to actually deliver the course. So to be true to the practice, there was a lot I had to do internally and also bring my family along to actually be able to teach. And, and it's that, it's watching people accept this and also people adapt in various ways through their lives. So to some, you know, it might be just a strong asana practice. But in that practice, and if you do it over and over again, there is so much of meditation and mm. so much of the philosophy that can be delivered just in that physical practice. And it, it's it's great to watch people you it's know, so changing. It's so isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know, and embracing that as a as a big part of their their well-being which is so important you know particularly today with all the with the issues that we hear about in terms of mental health well-being from schools right through to adulthood we're so challenged we lose a lot of our connection to things and i think yoga whichever way you practice it brings you back to that important connection yeah definitely mm. how did you get involved with yoga australia Obviously, because I did the course <laughs> and the founders of Yoga Australia, a lot of them at the time were part of the faculty. So Kay Tripe, Josie Goosen, Lee Blaschke, his wife, Heather Blaschke, although I didn't learn from her. Janet Louts was new to teaching then. I think we were our f- her first year. Um, but they were all had such a big link to Yoga Australia. So doing that course, you get introduced to Yoga Australia almost straight away. And then within the first year, you're actually a member of Yoga Australia because the, the course offers that. So I became involved in Yoga Australia, going to the state meetings, helping out where I can. But maintaining my relationship with Kay and Josie and, and Lee in particular and Janet meant that I attended these sessions at Yoga Australia and also you, you know, it's the mindset, it's important to be Yoga Australia and to support it. If you want to be a yoga teacher in Australia, it's important to be part of Yoga Australia, which was known as the Yoga Teaching Association of Australia at the time. Well, actually, we'd love to delve into that question a bit more because me and Ran are both members, Mm -hmm. but quite often we'll see on Facebook or somewhere, someone will post the question like, do I need to join Yoga Australia or Yoga Alliance Mm -hmm. and why? Mm -hmm. So speaking on behalf of Yoga Australia, Mm -hmm. what do you think are the important reasons to join this organisation? I think the important reason is the yoga and, and its standards. So if you want to uphold what yoga means to Australians and the people that you teach, I think it's important to belong to an association or an organisation that supports you and supports the integrity of yoga. And you can only do that as a community. This is a membership organisation. We exist because teachers want us to exist, want us to advocate for them and support them. So our role is advocacy, but also there's also a big part of where we're actually ensuring that the high standards are maintained year on year. And now there's a bigger role because of the popularity of yoga. We also represent Australia in the international space to make sure that we are heard and the standards that we are proposing are also in that international forum. And you'll find that Yoga Australia has got one of the highest standards globally. So this is a, an organisation, when the founders found it, was, was to ensure that the integrity of yoga was maintained, and that still exists. Now the role's grown, you know, 
we advocate, we support and protect yoga teachers to make, you know, to make sure that they get paid the right amount. If there's an issue in workplace, etc., where they're ready to step in, provided that you're a member or that you've attended a class with a with a member, and we can we can help out. It's really hard because the industry remains unregulated here and globally, and I think that's the best for this industry because of the many traditions and styles. If if you regulate this now you're going to take a lot of what yoga means to different people away and because it's unregulated it's even more important to to support an organization like Yoga Australia so we can offer that advocacy and support and protect this industry to make sure that teachers who are adequately qualified who've done that education and training that we are recommending are the ones that are recognized as yoga teachers that people employ as yoga teachers so that association means something it means like a certain level of training yes. and commitment commitment to, commitment to yoga yeah and understanding of yogic principles so a bit of a left turn but how did you become the ceo of yoga australia i graduated in 2008 Mm -hmm. as a teacher and I was teaching full-time for three years. So very involved in the yoga world as well as with Yoga Australia attending all their meetings. In 2011, or actually 2010, towards the end of 2010, the vacancy arose for a general manager role and that was the first time they ever had anyone in that role. And I applied for it and was interviewed by the then president and secretary of Yoga Australia, um, Michael Domenico and Gaynor Austin. And yeah, it was one of my toughest interviews, to be quite honest. After after so many years of management consulting, this was this was tough because it was a Yoga Australia remains a not-for-profit association, and there's a significant reliance on the goodwill of people. So the goodwill of our membership base, who volunteers so much for the organisation, and managing that and making sure our volunteers are looked after, was some of the challenges put in front of me when I was interviewed for the general manager position. And I was fortunate enough to get that position. So I've been there as a general manager to start with from 2011, and then in 2015. I was promoted to the position as the CEO because we had grown the office and grown the number of people that worked for us. Um, and the CEO position was primarily so that our volunteers can have a hands-off approach and focus on strategy and vision and be ambassadors of Yoga Australia. And so the CEO can then take on the up- operational role and the implementation of the strategies. So that's my journey so far. It's interesting that you say it was your toughest interview ever because we just spoke to Michael de Manincourt and we asked him about his like greatest triumphs or biggest achievements within Yoga Australia and hiring you was the top of his list. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, yeah. And I've enjoyed working, you know, and the amazing thing, what makes my role and why I've been here for so long is the fact that you're fully supported by the board what we know as the board today, but it was the executive committee. They are dedicated yoga teachers, but dedicated to this organization. You know, they, they are heart and souls with this organization. They've always got my back and they know how to work things and, and support me. So yeah, Michael, I've worked for Michael as the president, Lee Blashkley, Claire Netley, I'm not sure if you've interviewed her, and then now Leanne. 
Hey folks, it's Joe here, just popping in to tell you about a really unique aerial therapeutics training with Renee Stevens. It's happening on November 14th and 15th with the free information night on Wednesday the 13th at Studio 3 in Mooney Ponds. I'm super excited about it. You've probably heard me talking on the podcast about how passionate I am about the nurturing and soothing aspects of aerial yoga and how useful it can be as a tool to make yoga more accessible to people with restricted movements. In this training, you'll learn more about the physical and mental health benefits of the aerial hammock and its potential for self-calming and self-regulation, the neurobiology of trauma and pain, and the role of creativity and flow state experiences in healing. Renee has spent the last 20 years working between the fields of creative arts therapies, therapeutic movement and yoga, rehabilitation and mental health trauma recovery. She wants to bridge the gaps between people working in the mental and physical health fields. And this weekend is open to people working in these fields and is a prerequisite to an 150 hour course she has planned for next year, which will offer specialty modules co-facilitated with clinical experts in the fields of yoga therapy, psychology, physical rehab, traumatology and occupational therapy. I'll pop a link in the show notes if you want to find out more and I'll be there myself as this training is a convergence of so many things that I want to learn more about. And we didn't actually realise that the role of president was actually a fully volunteer position. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So all board members are volunteers. So we've just increased the board members now to seven two weekends ago. So it was four and we now have seven board members. But aside from that, we have seven national management committee members based in each state in Australia. And then we have state committees who help us out with all our events. So quite a lot of volunteers coming up to about between 30 and 40 that mm-hmm. we have that help us out at different different times. So yeah, significant amount of time is, is given to Yoga Australia. What do you feel your greatest successes have been since you've been in the role of CEO? The biggest success is really managing the office and, and growing that office space and having appropriate operational systems and processes so that it, it works naturally and our members are supported. So your registration is easy, your renewals are easy, any questions that you have are answered straight away. So it's setting up an office that ensures there's a someone at the other end answering the calls for yoga teachers. So it makes any administration that a teacher has a lot easier for us to manage and help out. And also connecting to you know, remaining connected to yoga teachers, although, you know, we're we're sort of isolated in the office, but our doors are open, but my inbox is always open for any members to Mm. to come in and and as they are for all the staff, just being there and supporting the industry, really. So I think the biggest achievement is getting from 2011, when I joined to now, to actually the smooth running of the office to make sure the administration is, is really smooth and looked after. And I can imagine that working with 30 to 40 volunteers, mm. getting people to uh, offer their own time, it must be challenging in itself. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so processes to do that properly, to make sure that they are inducted in properly and they know their role at, at different events. Our volunteers also speak on our behalf, so they respond to media. So there's a lot of preparation, so there's a lot of processes. And also, a process to actually acknowledge that the work that they do properly and, mm-hmm. and make sure that 
people know that they're working, you know, as you said, it, it's, it really comes down as a surprise when people find out that most of these roles are volunteer roles and the whole office are part-timers as well. So we look bigger and we feel bigger than what we are, but we're not. We, we're still very, we're very small, mm-hmm. but we can get the work done. I guess that's an achievement in itself that mm-hmm. people think that yeah, so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've created this thing. Yeah, people think that we're a large corporate, but we're not. We're a small mm-hmm. not-for-profit, still in that small business thing. But we want to make sure that yoga teachers are supported. So we're, we're there to answer the questions. A lot of us go outside of our hours because we need to manage it when, when a yoga teacher has questions, mm. you know, and, and be there for them. And we've probably already touched on this, but what are the biggest challenges? The biggest challenge is working for a not-for-profit organization and working in this industry because yoga is something that's delivered from the heart space and it's only now becoming popular but if you look at it you know because you can't charge more than what what's happening today I know it's gone a little bit higher than perhaps in when I started in 2011 but not that much there's there's a limit to how much yoga teachers can charge there's a limit to how much a yoga business can grow you, you know, it's not going to be a, a, a you know a multi-million dollar business. But some people have made it a successful business. Uh, you know, they, there's authenticity. They've included workshops and teacher training. But it's it's always going to be a small cultural business in the arts sector. And the biggest challenge is to continue with that and to offer the support that we want to offer yoga teachers. I guess the financial barriers are the biggest challenges for us, but we're managing. And I think sometimes we get so visionary and we want to do so many things. And when we advocate, we want to start talking to the government. And that takes time. And I guess you need finances to support that as well. So we try and come down and bring it back down to the basic and say, we have to support our members and be clear on what their needs are. So the challenge is actually balancing what we can do for the size that we are and the resources that we can afford to have. So what do you think are the greatest challenges for yoga teachers out there today? Because I, I know many teachers might be struggling or what do you think are their greatest challenges? I think challenges? There, there are a lot of yoga teachers out there, but the demand is there for this mm-hmm. practice. And you can see that the practice is being used in schools, in corporates, in so many different environments. So there's a demand for yoga teachers. But as I said, it's not something that you that is going to be big business. It, it's something that you deliver from the heart space and you make ends meet. You find the resources to do what you love and and you deliver that. And most yoga teachers do that. The the challenge that yoga teachers face, you know, a lot of them come from similar backgrounds to me, corporate backgrounds or nursing backgrounds. So they understand what business is. They're a bit shy to use it in the yoga business and a bit shy to put a price on what they do. But I think they're learning how to do that and they're doing that well right now. But they're also, as a yoga teacher, you can become quite isolated mm. as well. And I think that's the challenge, I think. And so what we, what Yoga Australia does is have these events and networking events to try and bring the yoga teachers together in a sangha, if you like, and, and connect them with one another. In my experience, since, to, since I've been here, there's very little co- competition amongst yoga teachers. The referral system is preferred than competing. Obviously, there is 
is some competition, but mostly people, there's a limit, you know, say, for example, your studio takes 10 and if you get the extra, I don't think you'll be shy about saying, you know, there's the other studio that teaches similar to us that you can go to. Or if there's a specific need that you can't cater for, yoga teachers are happy to refer to someone else. So I think the, the biggest challenge for a yoga teacher, in our surveys, what we see is always around business and marketing. But I think most yoga teachers actually have that talent. We just need to bring that out in them. But it's the, the other side is the isolation of yoga teachers. It's mm. bringing them together and making sure they understand that we as an organization are there to support them. And coming to our events is one way of finding that support and, and talking to other yoga teachers. That ties into a conversation we were having with a friend recently where she was just talking about some financial action at a studio that she was teaching at that just didn't feel right mm-hmm. for her. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of being a little bit isolated of like, who can I talk to yes, about this? Yes, like, yeah. And she didn't realise that that was actually one of Yoga Australia's roles. Mm-hmm. Like if you are feeling like you need a bit of support mm-hmm. in, and advocacy mm-hmm. and somewhere where you're working and teaching, is something that Yoga Australia can help with. And I know like I think it was a couple of years ago, you actually did a survey about pay rates as yes. well because yeah. that's something that often people feel is rude to mm. ask their friends and mm. their peers about. Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, do you think this should be more of a part of yoga teacher training, more of the business practices, or do you think that this is like something that Yoga Australia is already offering as in postgraduate support for people yeah. who do want to get deeper into I think, the I think a yoga. bit of both. I think most teacher trainings, particularly if those that comply with our standards and guidelines, have that element of how do you set yourself up as a yoga teacher? You know, what are the first steps? Getting your ABN registration, where you can go for help, etc. So that's there as part of most courses. And what we do as additional support is to find those that are really talented and clue you on business. You know, so your social media marketing, for example, or digital media is a big thing. And so we have run courses like that. We also do courses in business planning and marketing, which is very general, but to get people thinking about, you know, what is it that you want to do with your yoga teaching business, uh, you know, and and there's so many, so much of variety. Some people have mixed their yoga with other businesses like Ayurveda or teas or cups and mats and props that go with yoga. Others have focused on workshops and retreat is a big thing. And then there's also teacher training you can do. And some have gone and done further training to become yoga therapists. So yes, we are there to support and to educate, but we're also there to support in in those issues that you say, you know, if if you feel that you're getting treated unfairly or being underpaid, we're there to answer your question. But the rate has stayed similar in, in, you know, we we sort of uh, put together as in the fitness industry and in the fitness industry, those rates as a fitness instructor haven't changed over the years. And, you know, there's also the fitness industry awards that we're part of. So all that needs to be taken into account. But when we actually put those pay rates, it's really about we interviewed, we did a survey and then compared it to level of experience and and teaching. And in some areas, there's a limit to how much you can negotiate because gyms will only pay that much. Mm. And studios are different and corporates are different. So, But we're here to support. We also know where to go. If it's a workplace issue, we'll tell you where to go. If it's a consumer issue, we know where it can go. So it's tough for teachers and, and people are lost because of the lack of regulation. And I think that's the place that we take. You know, we have the regulation somewhat for you to, to help you navigate through, through the issues that you have in the industry. 
For us especially, diversity and representation we feel are really big issues in the yoga world today. From how yoga is portrayed in the media to who just feels welcome booking into a class or a workshop. So we'd love to hear your perspective on this. Diversity is an issue, I mean, it's an issue in all industries, mm. in the fashion, in, in the performance industry in particular, and, and now yoga. I think over the years, Yoga Australia has, has learned and, and got it right. And we rely on our members to give us a lot of the images that we use to, to represent yoga. So diversity, for us, diversity is, you know, age, gender, race and all that. So we try and portray it as, as best we can. I guess the biggest thing on diversity where yoga is concerned is the body image issue. And again, we, you know, we try hard to not use the same things, but it's really, really challenging to find an image. If, if you're looking at stock images, there's such a big limitation there. And, and you can see that in the magazines. And to take a good photograph, it's, it also requires resources and, mm. and finances. So as I said, we rely on, on our teachers to provide that, but we also need to balance that with the quality of, of what we're putting out there. So we do our best with, with the images and we try and vary it as much as we can and, and make, ensure that yoga is portrayed in the correct way and that yoga is accessible and is for everybody. So that's our message. That's what we want to communicate. We don't always get it right, but we manage it and we listen to our members and we take down images or we apologise if we do get it wrong. And I guess that's another example <clears throat> of a volunteer action that will help everyone. If you are not seeing yourself or people that look like you mm. or seeing images that you feel are welcoming, <clears throat> if Yoga Australia mm. relies on volunteers for their images, that could be a really great gift to contribute some really beautifully diverse images that do show the reality of who is in your classes. Um, mm. Obviously, get permission <laughs> first yeah. before taking yeah. pictures of people. And we get a lot of that. We also get a lot of photos from the events that we run, so for our conferences, etc. So we run, we've done some photo shoots. So a lot of the studios are, you know, they do send us photos and, and things like that. So we do use them. And as I said, we just need to balance it with the quality that's required. So diversity is a big thing and it'll always always be a big thing and we need to make sure that we portray the right message that we want to be inclusive but yoga is something that's accessible to everyone. And I guess another aspect of accessibility <clears throat> beyond media representation is about affordability and about price and mm -hmm. That is a tricky one because you're both balancing yoga teachers' needs to make a viable income mm -hmm. with how do we make this a practice that price isn't a barrier. If you feel like you would like to go to yoga and you would benefit from it, especially if you're going through a really hard time in your life, mm -hmm. how do we make this practice accessible for the people who really need it? Mm -hmm. So I think one of the big things that we saw um, happen late last year, which was implemented this year, was the removal of yoga from health fund rebates. Although there were not many teachers using it but that were and that made it accessible particularly to those that really needed it and was part of their treatment plan in, in some in some cases so that became quite prohibitive but one of the great things about our yoga teachers is that there's so many of them that do the voluntary teaching or have actually gone into the community to teach in community halls and all that. So where, where it's a lot more cheaper for students to attend because the community spaces make it that way and make it work. And some of these community spaces do pay the teachers well. They do respect the teachers. So they pay them by getting more students or making more classes or getting government funding 
to do that. So there's a lot of spaces that you can make yoga accessible to people. And as I said, there's there's a lot of yoga teachers in training coming up, but there's a demand to match it. And I think, you know, yoga teachers are in that space where particularly if they can make it financially viable, a lot of them they'd offer classes for free or go back into the community to, to actually offer things. And so a lot of our state events or state meetings are done by yoga teachers who are our members and their time is offered for free. You mentioned the yeah. health rebate yeah. and another new aspect of government policy is NDIS. Yes. And I've had a couple of yoga teacher friends mm-hmm. who, well, one example was I referred a friend of mine who specialised in kids yoga mm-hmm. and in mental health mm-hmm. to one of my students who mm-hmm. wanted some support for a son mm-hmm. who was on the autistic spectrum. Oh, who yes. Okay. Needed some support with breathing practices mm-hmm. for kind of to be able to calm himself down yep. and his psychologist had recommended it. They tried with a psychologist but the office didn't suit him. He just didn't feel comfortable there. So mm-hmm. she wanted someone who could come to their home. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. So I recommended my mm-hmm. friend who was just perfectly specialised, mm-hmm. really loved working in this area. But they couldn't get funding for her through NDIS because there was no, the reason she told me was there was no quantifiable benefit of this practice, even though it was something that psychologist had recommended. And it just seems like such a confusing system to navigate as a yoga teacher and as a mum with a special needs kid. Mm-hmm. Is Yoga Australia looking at how to help yoga teachers navigate this? Um, Yes. So I've actually personally met up with NDIS myself. I think it was early last year to actually get them to recognise yoga, one thing, but also to look at making it easy for Yoga Australia registered teacher to become an, is it NDIA or NDIS provider? They initially had it, they had a, a specific category that yoga teachers could do it in and then that category was removed so for yoga teachers to register you have to register under something called innovation so then yeah so you've got to talk about how this practice is innovative and and most you know there there was the last time I checked at least about 50 or so yoga teachers that were registered to offer. You just need to know where to go to register it. And we've done a few newsletters to to extra, but it, it is challenging. And I think the NDIS and NDI themselves are still settling in with, with their own systems and processes. So since that meeting, I've had a few email communications, but nothing to nothing concrete to say, yes, yoga teachers need to do this and we will recognise Yoga Australia registered teachers and the application process will be there for Seamless. I think they're still going through their own setup issues and processes. I'm sure you've heard of it, but there is a way that yoga teachers can apply for NDIS registration. Happy to help whoever is there, but yeah, it, it's a challenge at the moment because it's not straightforward and you don't find it in, in the in the category that it's supposed to be in. Because I think it was to do with fitness and sport and then they, the sports, they didn't want yoga as part of that, which is fine. And then it got into that innovative category, which, which is a challenge to find and then to apply for. But you're right, you know, psychologists and surgeons are starting to recommend yoga as, as a practice. What do you feel that Yoga Australia could be doing better? I think, you know, one of the big things about Yoga Australia is we were a well-kept secret for a very long time. It's very hard for 
people didn't know about us until there was an issue or they discovered us by accident or it was a conference. But that that's changing, perhaps not as fast as everyone would like it to, but it is certainly changing. So we are consulted by media. There's a lot more people who employ yoga teachers who are asking for registration with us. But because it's unregulated, I think one of the things that people ask, you know, it's the same as the questions on Facebook. Why do I have want to become a member of Yoga Australia? What do we do? So people don't immediately see the value of, of this organization. So, and we can, you know, people look at it as, I'll go to them because, and, and this comes out in our surveys, you know, I'll join Yoga Australia because they have insurance or I join Yoga Australia because of the health fund rebates. But really, once you're part of the organisation, those are not the reasons. It, it's more than that. It's it's belonging to a community, connecting to other yoga teachers and ensuring that yoga is delivered in the way that it should be delivered in a safe and inefficient way. So for me, it's, it's really about the education to the wider community and people understanding what Yoga Australia is about and the importance of having someone that's registered with Yoga Australia when you when you choose a teacher. So ideally, in terms of, of growth, at the moment we have about 3,000 yoga teachers registered with us and we feel that's about a quarter of the yoga teachers in, in Australia. And I'd like to see that grow to have majority of yoga teachers, if they're teaching and working in Australia, to be part of Yoga Australia. Carrying on from that, where do you see Yoga Australia in the next 10 to 20 years? To be a body that truly represents yoga and to be recognised as, as a body that represents yoga. So we are a body that represents yoga, but to be recognised as such at all levels in, in the community and, and to have as many teachers as we can register with us. That's the growth I'd like to see. Final question that we ask Pretty much, well, we do ask everyone, if you could distill everything that you've learned through your life, through your journey with yoga, through your career with Yoga Australia, if you could distill everything you've learned down to one core essence, what do you think that one thing would be? It's a bit of a tricky one, but... It, it is tricky, and I think the answer that I'm going to give you right now is is what I've been through in the last few years. And also because when you're a leader of, of an organisation or when you're managing an office, it can be quite isolating as well because you're sitting up there and you're making sure everything's going right. And yes, I'm connected to my staff, but those challenges were real for me and it came to fruition this year. And I think so the biggest thing for me is is connection and maintaining the connection with the community as well as the people around you. And I mean, real connection, you know, understanding where they come from, their backgrounds, not just that Amy comes in to do accounts, but I know Amy and I know she's got three children and I know what her husband does, you know, that that type of thing, that type of connection, I think for me has become really important in the last couple of years. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing and thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Shamala. I definitely did. Jo and I have learned so much during this process of recording interviews with Yoga Australia. When we started out, we didn't realise that Yoga Australia was such a grassroots organisation and it's interesting to learn what's involved in running a group that is largely made up of volunteers. For our next conversation, we'll be speaking with Taruki and Yoko Nakano. We spoke with them while we were over in Japan and their story is just incredible. It's quite inspiring. 
Teruki and Yoko translated Jivana Heyman's accessible yoga course into Japanese, and it's their mission to bring accessible yoga to Japan. So look out for that episode next Monday. All right, our theme song is Baby Robots by Go Soul and is used with permission. Get us music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Joe and I would like to honour the elders of these wisdom traditions that have been passed down to us, and we would also like to honour the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Thank you so, so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs>